Yo, 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 what up? It's your boy, Kobe Mack, and this is the Kobe Told Me Podcast. Yo, whenever I want to deep dive with the Mac himself, where I get to amplify my movie reviews for your listening pleasure. I'm back. Time of recording is 5.45 in the afternoon on June 10th. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope your weekend was better than mine. I mean, not that my weekend was bad or anything. It just was wet. I don't know what happened, man. Yo, usually, like, spring is supposed to be the time when you're supposed to get all the rain and stuff. You know, May showers. No, is April flower. Shit. April showers bring May flowers. Well, it's the beginning of June, and it's, like, been the wettest that it's been here in Georgia and Atlanta in, like, the past couple months, which is fine. I mean, I don't really have, like, uh, like flowers and stuff like that to be worried about, but this is definitely, like, I keep putting off trying to, like, mow my lawn, and I keep having legitimate excuses not to. But the good thing is, is that whenever it rains, it's an opportunity just to be able to watch a whole gang of stuff. So it has been a very, very productive week for your boy and catching up on all the streaming and everything that I said that I was going to do. Yo, I got a chance to watch Always Be My Maybe. I got a chance to watch The Perfection on Netflix. I got a chance to be able to watch When They See Us. Oh my gosh. I'm going to drop a fire review for that and just kind of be prepared because I'm going to really go in deep. Um, because that is the one series this year that like deeply impacted me. Um, and also I got a chance to just catch up on a bunch of stuff. Yo, I started streaming Barry. Like it's a really easy binge through the first season. I'm like in episode six on HBO. It's been a lot of fun. It's some really clever writing. Like I really, really enjoyed it. As an actor, it really like kind of just picks at all of my sensibilities that I love about LA and my LA journey. So I really hope that I get a chance to talk about all that stuff with y'all. Be able to give a little bit of insight, a little bit of review. There's some stuff that I have to be able to finish up on too. You know, you got um, hopefully the closeout game of the NBA Finals tonight. I am a super duper LeBron James fan. And unfortunately, while he couldn't be with us this uh, NBA playoffs, I am rooting hardcore against the fake dynasty that is the Golden State Warriors. Now, I may lose some fans to the podcast because of that. I don't care. I ain't want you. Nah, but... Yeah, I got a lot of stuff getting tonight, and I'm going to go ahead and record tonight with my crew at Minority Report. I'm so happy because it's been a little bit, so I hope y'all be able to get to check that out too. But today, what I got for you, it's been a good week in the movies that I've enjoyed, kind of. It doesn't seem like a lot of people did in the box office. (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking about X-Men Dark Phoenix, the closeout of this amazingly long Fox cinematic franchise that kind of helped pave the way it started off for the superhero genre. So, I'm going to be talking about this movie, my thoughts. If you haven't got a chance to watch it, you know what I always tell you, please watch it first. Come rock with the review later and then get at me. But, for those that did, I'll see you on the other side. Closure is a tricky thing. Getting closure from a long relationship between lovers or even friends is tough. Getting closure professionally or mentally can even be tougher. The mere act of closing something has a finality to it, even if it's for a moment. Closing a book to open it later. Will I remember where I left off? Closing the front door of my house, but I remember to turn on the lawn. Imagine being tasked with closing out a near two-decade-long film franchise that helped pave the way for the comic book superhero movie genre. 
It's a tall order. 2019 has been a year which is already turned out, in my opinion, the final stories of two of the more heralded cinematic franchises in pop culture. You got Game of Thrones and the Infinity Saga in Avengers Endgame. Each different, but similar in a lot of ways. So you got both tales, their adapted works with the challenges that are tasked of being faithful to the source material while offering something new and fitting for the screen. Some choices worked out better than others in both, but we can all agree that the effort put into perfection would be futile. The goal is to not to try to make them perfect because that's not what an adaptation is supposed to be. You know, I'm not too familiar with George R. R. Martin, but I'm pretty sure that when he first started writing the Song of Ice and Fire, he was in a different stage in his life, in a different frame of mind that over the course of time, his choice to adapt that work has to change. Same thing with some of the Marvel characters. I mean, I grew up reading these comics and seeing Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and Hulk to try to adapt what was in the comic book page on screen. It had to be different. I don't want it to be a complete retelling of what we've already seen. Captain America's Civil War on screen is completely different from how it was depicted inside the comics and there's a number of reasons for that. A lot of politics and bureaucracy and who owns what and what you can do and what without it. But to be honest with you, I'm trusting the visionaries. I'm trusting the artists that do this for a living in their direction. To take me on a journey that's unique for where we are in this time, in today's society, for the culture. So both tales are adapted works with the challenge and task of being faithful to the source material while offering something new and fitting for the screen. All we ask for is that the payoff and the story and the characters that it brings about an engaging, entertaining, and fitting ends with maybe a sliver of hope for the future. Now I contend that Endgame is succeeded more ways than like the divisive nature that was kind of put around Game of Thrones season eight. And it feels like I'm not alone in that camp. Unfortunately, Simon Kidberg's his uh his directorial debut in Dark Phoenix, it fails even harder. Than Game of Thrones did, but not for the reason you may think. So you got Jean Grey, you know her. Fair skin, bright red hair. She's a level five telekinetic mutant, and the X-Men, they're thrust into action at the request of the president to help save a troubled space crew escape from what appears to be a catastrophic solar flare. Now she's holding a space trap together with her psychic powers while Nightcrawler saves one last crew member. Jean is consumed by the solar affair. She's engulfed with a burning light and a massive explosion that leaves a presumably lifeless body floating in, in space. Now, apparently with some just good old duct tape and a space helmet, Nightcrawler, he vamps out of where he was into the vacuum of space and returns Jean to the X-Jet, which for some reason is still not called the Blackbird. And ultimately everybody returns to the X-Mansion. Jean miraculously wakes up feeling better than ever, stronger, more energized, sexually charged, and ready to explode. What seems like a miracle, fortune turns into a curse as a cosmic entity now inhabiting her body unlocks horrendous childhood memories that makes Jean an unstoppable and possibly unstable threat to everyone around her. It's a classic storyline. The, the, the Dark Phoenix saga that I kind of knew from the comics and I really enjoyed more 
with the incredible 1990s animated TV series on Fox on Saturday morning. Shout out. It's a sprawling storyline that spans several comic issues and many episodes. I mean, Gladiator and Lalandra and, you know, um, like with Cyclops' dad. And I, I was super young, but I got it and I loved it. And for those of you who grew up with the OG show, it is so hard not to kind of hum the tune. You know you want to do it. It's really impossible not to like get hype about how great that show was. Like, Man, it, like it, it's crazy. So the thing is, is that compressing the storyline of Dark Phoenix into another solo film under two hours, it was never gonna work. I repeat, never going to work. X-Men The Last Stand, that was the first go around with that art and it was the biggest failure in my opinion of the entire franchise. Now, we were in a unique age of heroes on the big screen as films like Blade and X-Men and Spider-Man they brought about the purchase of many comic book intellectual properties that just kind of be gobbled up by all these studios and spit out to turn a profit. Technology wasn't all the way on our side then, but with each year, advances were made to bring to life what we could only dream and see on, that was drawn on the page. What seemed to always suffer, though, was the story. Now, it's always been peculiar how these artists who drew and wrote some of the greatest comic book runs ever could not have a faithful, yet effective cinematic translation produced. Not to say that writers of comics can't write screenplays, they're just different skill sets at work. But why not have a collaborative effort bring a meeting of the minds to get it right? Some call it lazy, I see it as business. I can't say whether or not it's good business or bad business, but it's business and the box office tells one story and criticism tells another. I guess the time, effort, and money needed to get more of what we all wanted was practical, or excuse me, wasn't as practical for studios and production companies looking to earn a quicker buck. So that may explain the why Dark Phoenix wasn't set up to succeed, but there's a lot more layers to it that would take too long to get all inside of this review. To be honest, <laughs> the reluctance to this tale being retold again and the finality with the franchise and its actors, I believe it helped my overall impression. So we knew it was coming, and I'm not going to be one of those butthurt people that is just, you know, upset at its existence, especially after another flop, critically with the X-Men Apocalypse. Like, that just came two years ago, so I'm not going to start now. I'm going to watch it. Like, I like to think of my viewing experience like I do with my food. It may sound weird to you, but it just makes too much sense to me. We all have culinary preferences. I know when I'm on Uber Eats or, or Yelp, if I'm looking to get some grub, I typically steer clear of rating six and below. That's just me. I'm not looking at no place that's pretty much got a six or below. Some state people standards may be higher. I'm fine with that, you know? Now, I'm not saying I haven't tried food below a six, but that typically and unfortunately comes after the meal. Like, take for instance, Applebee's. When you think about the name, what do you think about? It's not a 10. For almost anyone I know, before a quick lunch, I know what I'm getting. And I go back. Not often, but I do go back. Just because it's not a 10 doesn't mean I'm never dining there again. Like, nobody's constantly eating out at 10s all the time. Like, McDonald's been in business forever, and it's not a 10. 
Same thing with Burger King and with Taco Bell and all these places. So after X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men Origins Wolverine and X-Men Apocalypse, those are the poorer films critically, the bar has been lowered each time. So much so the critical response to Dark Phoenix, it kind of set the table for an undercooked and a little raw, let's say uh, Southwest steak salad from Applebee's. Okay? However, I walked out not feeling too bad about my evening. Like I thought, hmm, okay, I got a nice Bildron sampler instead. You know, a little bit of this, mix with a little bit of that. Doesn't hit all the way around, but it still had some redeeming qualities to it. I wish we as, as critics, as, a, as a, a critical body would fess up to the biases we hold and how expectations create bars that are easier and harder to get over or under depending on the viewer. Film is an art form I like to call subjectively objective. Many critics went in wanting to hate this film and were damned to do so regardless of what they got. There's people who already made up in their mind, yo, everything leading up to this film, the production issues, the dates being pushed back, all the shit with it, they wanted to hate this film and they were gonna do it regardless. I think for those that went in with an open mind were able to take enough out of it. Yes, this script is trash. <laughs> like, I'll get that right out the way. Simon Kickberg may be a first time director, but he's a seasoned writer with a slew of hits and misses. Well, more misses than hits and that should have been a red flag, except he's responsible for a lot of notable films like, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith love that movie. Like, I remember watching that my last year of high school. Like, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. Oh, gosh. Jumper. Yo, shout out to Christian Haydenson. Hayden Christensen. Yeah, that sounds better. Like, it actually worked for me. I really, really like that. Samuel Jackson. Like, it was dope. And then X-Men Days of Future Past, which is considered the best in the X-Men franchise. Simon Kickberg wrote that. So the man clearly displays a capacity for writing somewhat well-received big budget blockbusters. That's a skill. And it's a skill I hope to develop at home. To be able to tell a story on a large scale that grasps the scope of its plot and the relatability to its characters is essential to being considered one of the greats. So how does this guy not only get a second crack at the Dark Phoenix story, but also gets a chance to direct it? Yo, clout is everything. And he's got it. He's a name. My mom almost told me uh, growing up that there's power in a name. And if Simon Pig Kinberg isn't proof of that, I don't know what is. Like, it was all there for him, though. Like, it's laid out in dozens of issues and comics. He had access to all the tools and resources, even his own missteps in the Brett Ratner-directed, Kinberg-written X-Men The Last Stand, that bastardization of a story is steer far from. The plot in this movie is derivative. The arcs, regardless of how challenging they were to nail down, have had years and years to form and write themselves organically, yet he chose to force conflict between teammates, force an inorganic feminist narrative that hurts more than it helps, and does nothing new to characters we've spent to too little time with, nor provide a satisfactory close into the franchise of Fox. Like, it's equally as challenging to provide satisfactory performances when the script is at the root of most of the problems with the film. But damn it, James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender, they just don't care, folks. They just don't care. At this point, four films in, these men, they're automatic. Like, just good. Like, they can literally just speak gibberish. They can speak baby talk in a completely different other language and it'll be compelling. Like, 
it's it's not just about their delivery, but it's just the, the raw emotion just eviscerating every scene that they're in. Like if you think back to first class, which I have near the top of like my X-Men rankings, and I'll share some of those with you a little bit later. Like what James McAvoy does for Charles Xavier, it's completely his own take, and it's so different. And what Michael Fassbender does, like I remember after the success of X2 and like they were really talking about kind of like expanding the universes into a bunch of different spinoffs, Magneto was supposed to get his own spinoff film, right? And everybody's like, ah, like it was cool his storyline, having Magneto be a mutant that was a victim of, you know, um, internment camps, you know, with the Holocaust, like that's really, really dope. But you want Ian McKellen trying to star in his own Magneto movie? When we saw X-Men First Class, and literally the first act that Matthew Vaughn puts together was Michael Fassbender hunting down Nazis. Like, oh, it was really, really, really good. Like, they're imperfect in their ideals and in their friendship with each other, but yet they continue to work together. Their journey from X-Men First Class to Dark Phoenix, like those are the pillars to this quadrilogy that's gonna be sorely missed. Good luck to whoever is expected to fill those shoes in the MCU. And if you got some ideas on fan casting, I will share those online with you. Now, to the other characters in the film, they weren't so much that bad, just not offered much to work with. Like, Nicholas Holt's Beast isn't bad, but like the prospects of ever being good with the film in general was never off to a good start. He's a fine Hank McCoy, but a way too young one. Like, that was okay in the 1960s with First Class, but it's going to be hard for a lot of our viewers to continue to ignore this 30-year-old man playing what is supposed to be almost 60-year-old professor. Like, the continuity, obviously, throughout the franchise run, it's been like the butt of a lot of jokes. Like, even in their spinoff film, Deadpool, its titular anti-hero hilariously chastises the studio for its blatant disregard for it. Hope is fine. Ty Sheridan, yo, he's better than James Marsden, in my opinion. Alexandra Ship, surprisingly, is okay, too. And I could not stand her take as Storm. Now, don't get me wrong. I couldn't stand Holly Berry's Storm, either. But Alexandra Ship in this film was fine. You get your standard from Evan Peters as Quicksilver, too, except definitely not enough Quicksilver. I mean, he's been the standout in the three films he's been a part of with the expert devotion displaying his mutagenetic speed with the incredible VFX, like... If you think of Days of Future Past, the most iconic scene of that film is him using his speed up where everything slows down inside of like the kitchen and moving it. Like it was great, even with the music, and they did it again inside of Age of Apocalypse, excuse me, Apocalypse, right? And it kind of worked too, right? But then, like you want more than that, and you want that to be added, but you just get a small dose. And it's those small doses that kind of add to the stunting of the film's potential. We just we just barely got to know Cyclops, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Jean, yet we're expected to care for the situations we haven't had time to connect with. A romance between Cyclops and Jean that, yeah, if you grew up with the show, you knew, but in the context of the films, it blossoms and we didn't get a chance to invest in it. Jean is central to this story, yet we haven't had enough time to care about her because this is the only film. I mean, really, she's been in like 1.5 movies. <laughs> like the last movie she was in, like she was at the mall, and then she kind of developed her own Phoenix powers on her own at the end of the movie to beat Apocalypse. Man, 
Apocalypse really was a bad movie. Like, it was bad. And there's no payoff there. You, you see, that's it. Like, these films continue just to let the next film write out its problems by just ignoring it. Fans are smarter than that. Like, and when you're building shared universes, it comes with more responsibility. Like, the superhero movies don't get the luxury of being a self-contained story any longer. They are interconnected. They're interdependent on what came before to inform you on what's going to come. And it's the job of the director and the writer to work the magic from there. If you want Raven slash Monique to be beefing with Charles Xavier and have it resonate with us, it can't come out of left field. That means you must write the first act to foreshadow the conflict to come in the second and not give it all away in the trailer. Spoiler alert, Mystique dies. But if you're paying attention to the trailer, it shows you that. Like, honestly, good riddance to Mystique. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but Jennifer Lawrence's displeasure with her role, its responsibilities, the sacrifice she has to make has been way too public for way too long. And thankfully, she's put out of her misery. She ain't got to worry about it no more. Crazy thing is, she was phoning it in less in this movie than in Apocalypse. But it's still, her overall result was less than impactful. It didn't impact the narrative except to be a plot device and be derivative much of the conflict, but not in a good way. Now, I said that there would be some redeeming qualities to this film, and I meant that. Hans Zimmer's score is like a new X-Men character itself. Like, it is amazing. A supporting character that helps elevate the performances around it and everyone slightly, and the setting in a way that only a maestro can. Only the way that Hans Zimmer can. And don't get me wrong, the music almost feels like it shouldn't work, it shouldn't belong in this movie, but then it's the only thing pulling you into the story. So, if a wasted Jessica Chastain gives the most wooden performance of a life, which I think was written and directed to be that way, the score was making that easier to digest. It's hypnotic, it's it's blends of trance and sense. Like you absolutely forget about the primary villain's goal because you're just so wrapped up in this feeling that the music is giving you. Not that it was clear at all, the goal really was not clear. And you just enjoy the score set to the action. And there is a lot of action. Like watching this in Dolby, hashtag Kobe does Dolby, was the best way imaginable to drown out the malaise of the plot and be treated to great visual effects and camera work around it. And like, yo, shout out to the team that put this together because like, even when in motion, the amount of CG that's in use, it never lets up. And there may have been a scene at one time, like I was like, ooh, that looks a little, little rough. But to be honest with you, I'd say a lot of audiences wouldn't be able to sell. They wouldn't be able to know. Like I was presently surprised at the heavy display of the X-Men's power sets and how it worked so good cinematically. The colors in this film, the sound design was awesome. Like the film knew how to have fun with what it could outside of the script to make everything work. So maybe my expectations were so low, not so low, but they were just so low that this, this, this film did indeed end up on the right side of favorability for me. I mean, it's on the lowest possible side though, but the score, the visual effects, honestly, some of the best displays of X-Men powers we've ever seen cinematically, it'll do that. The action scenes were awesome too. And yes, the first act and script in general isn't good, it's garbage. I guess now that I think about it, it you know, it, it does kind of feel eerily like another female-led superhero film that came out just a few months ago. Ew. But if you look past that, what we got wasn't all that bad. If you squint, the film could almost stand on its own if you separated it from the franchise, and it's not as bad as I thought it would have been. However, as the conclusion to an almost 20-year cinematic franchise, it's as good as it could have been given the circumstances. Kobe told me ratings are 6 out of 10. 
written and directed by Simon Kinberg, starring James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Nicholas Holt, Sophie Turner, Ty Sheridan, Alexandra Shipp, Evan Peters, and Jessica Chastain. Runtime is 113 minutes, rated PG-13. Yo, that puts the nail in the coffin of another cinematic franchise, not for a long time. X-Men is making its way over to the MCU. I'm excited to see what can happen. I hope that we have a little bit of a breather. I mean, even though there's so many stories to tell with the X-Men, it's a super rich franchise that's never been properly tapped. Like, we got great mutant movies, but not great X-Men movies. Even the ones that work, like, there's so much to mine from there, but I really think that we need just some some space to kind of let it breathe. Like, let's take four or five years, no X-Men, right? Let's focus on the first Family of Marvel. Let's focus on Fantastic Four. Let's get that in motion. Simon Kidberg, you don't touch this damn script, <laughs> all right? Kevin Feige, don't let this motherfucker nowhere near the script, okay? I don't give a damn about his name. Stay away. He, keep in mind, folks, Simon Kidberg wrote Fantastic Four. Just put that out there. But not for real, like, don't get turned off by the rating either. Yo, make up your own mind. I don't care if everybody's like, yo, this film is trash. Watch the movie. Because apparently, not many people did. It only made like $33 million this past weekend. Not good. But no production goes in it trying to be bad. Like, say what you want about the studios. Because they're trying to make money, they're not trying to purposely put out a shit product for you not to buy. They're just trying to cheapen as much as it can to try to get the quickest amount of money as quickly as possible. And it's not going to work. This is already shaping up to be the lowest performer of any of the X-Men movies. And it's really unfortunate when it comes at the end and at the expense of this final movie, right? But go watch it. Actually, I want to watch it again. There's a lot that I feel like a lot of people can be able to join and buy from this because it was really enjoyable. But I got a lot of other movies to watch that are super enjoyable. So please be on the lookout. Tomorrow, I'm going to be uh, dropping in um, Secret Life of Pets. I'm going to go ahead and write up my review and get that podcast out for you as well. Um, that's on the dock of a Tuesday. Wednesday, When They See Us, um, the Ava DuVernay project that was uh, written directed by her at Netflix, um, chronicling the story um, that led up to the Central Park Five, um, their imprisonment, their ultimate um, exoneration and after they adjusted their life and where they are now I gotta say it's one of the most powerful um, TV series I've ever watched and I'm really not trying to be hyperbolic it hit me that much and maybe I am biased because I'm a New Yorker and I just remember growing up around the times after what happened and how it affected my life and I think it's really important for everybody to be able to see and hear that story and I, I can't wait to be able to spend some time with you um, on Thursday, I'm going to do my best to kind of drop a uh, review of Pod for the Perfection, uh, which is going to be really, really intriguing. That's another one that was on there with uh, Allison Williams from, uh, you remember from Get, uh, Get Hard, from Get Out <laughs> with Jordan Peele, where she's another crazy white chick up to, I, I guess no good? Don't, don't watch the trailer, just watch the movie, and then we're going to be able to talk about it on Thursday. And of course, Thursday night, I'm checking out Men in Black International and see if this movie's any good. I got a sneaky feeling it won't be, but you'll hear from me. So uh, that's what I got coming up on the schedule. And uh, yo, please, if you ever want to just kind of keep up with your boy, uh, make sure you can visit my website for all my written content at ColbyToldMe.com and listen to me co-hosting with the crew 
at the Minority Report Podcast. You can follow us and all the crazy commentary at mreportpod on Twitter and Insta. You know, be on the lookout for the Stream Team Podcast I'm developing at the end of the summer where I can kind of curate what's hot and what's not between all the streaming services. Get at me on all the socials, at Kobe Toby on Instagram and Twitter, at Kobe Mac on Facebook. Shoot me an email, Kobe Toby at Kobe... No, Kobe Mac at KobeToby.com. So much stuff. All the info is going to be inside the pod. But always remember, when they ask you where you heard it from, tell them Kobe told me. Peace.